Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, Miller and Condon, uh, Governor Kim Reynolds, is, as we speak, just beginning her press conference. Here's the governor of Iowa. Positive cases for a total of 1,048 positive cases. We have three new counties, Buena Vista, Delaware, and Green, for a total of 78 counties. We have 1,017 negative cases today for a total of 11,670 negative cases. We have 1,690 available tests at the State Hygienic Lab. As of last evening, we have 104 hospitalized and we have 341 recovered. I am sorry to report again today that we have had one additional death, an elderly adult from Benton County for a total of 26 deaths in Iowa. 11% of the positive cases are long-term care staff and residents, and 46% of the deaths have been long-term care residents. So many Iowans have expressed interest in the Iowa National Guard's role in our COVID-19 response and how they are being engaged to help mitigate the spread of the virus. The Iowa National Guard plays a critical role in any disaster situation and is a vital part of my COVID-19 response team. In previous press conferences, you've heard about the missions they're conducting across the state to ensure that PPE is available for healthcare workers. But their responsibilities extend much further and are integral to our entire response operations, especially in the coordination of healthcare resources across Iowa. Today, I've asked Adjutant General Ben Corral to join me and provide an overview of how the Iowa National Guard is supporting our state during this unprecedented time. General? Thank you, Governor Reynolds, for the opportunity to provide an update on what the Iowa National Guard is doing to support the people of Iowa as we work collectively with your entire response team to mitigate the effects of COVID-19. The soldiers and airmen of the Iowa National Guard are proud to be a part of the solution as we all work together during this unprecedented challenge facing Iowa and our nation. We currently have over 200 Iowa National Guard soldiers and airmen on duty directly supporting the state's response efforts. We are prepared to increase our numbers as conditions change. As we speak, Iowa National Guard transportation units are on the road delivering vital medical protective, personal protective equipment out to county emergency management facilities across our state. Since these PPE missions began last month, we have delivered PPE to all 99 counties in Iowa, and in many counties, we've made multiple deliveries. This is a critical mission that we are conducting every day, keeping this vital PPE pipeline flowing to points of need across the state almost as quickly as it arrives in Iowa. In addition to the robust planning and coordination cells we've established here in the Iowa Joint Force Headquarters to help manage our efforts with the state's Emergency Operations Center, I have also activated three additional task force headquarters across the state to support our pandemic response activities. 
These task forces, led by a senior Iowa National Guard commander, are designed to provide planning, coordination, communication, and command and control of military forces activated in support of our local, state, and federal partners on our regional response efforts within the state. At the direction of the governor, we've established six regional medical coordination centers, or RMCCs, in support of the Iowa Department of Public Health and the Iowa Healthcare Coalitions. These coordination centers are located within the six healthcare regions across the state of Iowa at Iowa National Guard armories in Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, Camp Dodge, Mason City, Council Bluffs, and Sioux City. Regional public health officials supported by our Iowa National Guard soldiers and airmen are staffing these centers to support healthcare providers, allowing them to make informed treatment decisions based on immediately available resources like open beds, available staffing, personal protective equipment, and other critical healthcare assets. In short, RMCCs help facilitate multi-agency and civilian partner communication, critical information sharing, and coordination of healthcare-related resources across the regions that they serve. This scalable capability is a critical resource available to help decision makers save lives as conditions within the region change and normal response processes are no longer an option. Iowans are used to seeing our soldiers and airmen responding to floods, tornadoes, winter storms, and other natural disasters. The strength of our organization is in these soldiers and airmen who live and work in your community while serving part-time until we need them to answer the call. We are now answering the call, and we will always be ready to support our fellow Iowans. My commitment to the governor is that the Iowa National Guard will not be late to need in support of any state mission. My role as the Adjutant General is to provide the governor my best military advice on how best to use the capability of the Iowa National Guard as we collectively work together with our state and federal partners to support the people of Iowa and mitigate the threat from this virus until it has been defeated. Thank you. Thank you, General. I also want to thank all the soldiers and airmen of the Iowa National Guard for their services to our state. We deeply appreciate the sacrifices you and your families make whenever duty calls. Please be safe and stay well as you serve on the front line of this crisis. As General Correll stated, the RMCCs are a critical resource to support health care providers at this time. Under normal circumstances, Iowa's health care coalition regions are served by sep separate health care systems, community hospitals, and independent providers. But during an emergency, especially one the size and scope of a worldwide pandemic, it may become necessary to pool resources and work together as one health system, serving the needs of a region or the entire state. And this is what the RMCCs are proactively planning for. Last week, we shared a map representing Iowa's sixth healthcare coalition, six healthcare coalition regions. And today, I want to take a closer look at two of those regions and explain how the RMCCs can enable care coordination between providers to ensure the right care at the right time and in the right place for Iowans in need. So, for instance, RMCC Region 5 in 
um, includes the southeast corner of the state and includes Johnson County, one of the state's hotspots and a county where our first positive COVID-19 cases were identified. As of yesterday, 20 COVID-19 patients were hospitalized in Region 5. Three had been admitted in the last 24 hours, seven were in ICU, and three were on ventilators. At this time, there remain 713 inpatient beds available in the region, 94 ICU beds, and 181 ventilators available and ready for patient care. RMCC Region 6 yeah. uh, covers the northeast corner of the state and it includes Lynn County, another of the current hotspots in the state. As of today, 77 of Lynn County's 184 total positive COVID cases are related to an outbreak in a single long-term care facility. We know older adults over the age of 60 and those with underlying health conditions are at the highest risk for serious illness from the virus and may require intensive care. We have 50 COVID-19 patients hospitalized in Region 5 as of yesterday. Six had been admitted in the last 24 hours. 27 were in an ICU and 17 were on ventilators. During this same time frame, there were 1,004 inpatient beds available, 57 ICU beds and 110 ventilators available in Region 6 hospitals. Despite our increasing cases, our patient volume in these regions is manageable. Hospital capacity is strong and ventilators are in good supply. This is encouraging, but we are in a very fluid situation, which is why we continue to monitor everything very closely on a daily basis. Understanding our bed and vent capacity and intensive care capabilities within a region enables us to effectively coordinate care if patient volume dramatically increases. If critical equipment like vents are in short supply to facility, the RMCC will coordinate moving them from one location to another to accommodate the need. Even patients can be transferred to a different facility if their condition demands a higher level of care. As we progress toward an anticipated peak of positive cases later this month, the RMCC's ability to monitor patient volume, acuity, and availability of resources will better enable our health systems to surge and flex to accommodate increased demand across the region. I want to extend my gratitude to Iowa's primary health systems, including UIHC, Unity Point Health, Mercy One, and Genesis, as well as all of the community hospitals across the state. Your commitment to coming together as one system to serve Iowans during this unprecedented time is admirable. So thank you for everything that you're doing and for what you and your teams will do in the days and weeks to come. Thank you. And with that, we will open it up for questions. Uh, Governor, your office said last week they're going to release a projection of the number of COVID-19 cases. Um, do you have any updates on when we can expect that projection? I think what we said last week is that we're working um, on modeling and we're looking at um, an agreement with the University of Iowa um, College of Public Health. We've been actively working to get that in agreement in place and the first part of that work will um, involve analyzing existing models that um, exist like the University of Washington model that we've talked about previously. There are a number of different models out there um, and so we'll first be asking them to kind of analyze that information that currently exists and then from there um, the plan is to 
transition into more modeling and forecasting um, for Iowa to the extent that modifications to those existing models, um, are we, to the extent that there's interest in continuing to modify those existing models. So we're working on it, and we don't have it, you know, in hand yet, um, but it's actively work in progress. Can we still expect it this week? I know. Um the governor's chief of staff told lawmakers last week that it perhaps could come this week. I think we'll have um, what we'd anticipate this week is some analysis of existing models and how um, they may or may not account for mitigation measures that the governor has taken, that the governor has put in place. Um, in terms of the, the, the modeling and the forecasting, that, that does take some time. It's not something that can be done in, in a day or two. And so um, I don't think we have a firm projection yet from the university, um, uh, College of Public Health in terms of when exactly we'll be able to have that. But do know that we're working on it and we hope to have it um, in the days and weeks to come. The data about uh, patients who've recovered, what are the benchmarks you're using to determine that someone's recovered? Or are they getting retested? I know testing supplies are, are limited um, to begin with. So I'm wondering what Iowans can know about someone who's actually recovered and safely can say that. Yeah, so what we're looking at in terms of um, recovery is that um, we're, we're not doing test-based recovered measures at this particular point in time due to our limited um, number of tests that we do have available. So uh, what we would consider to be somebody who is a recovered case is somebody who has self-isolated for at least seven days after the start of symptom onset and then for at least another three days after the resolution of um, their fever or their other symptoms. How, how do you account for those asymptomatic people, though, in that situation? Like, is that any consideration of how people might be showing symptoms? I mean, is there any data about people could be showing them later or sooner, and how do you account for that? Well, I think that's why um, we would recommend, we continue to recommend that when people leave their homes, if they need to leave their homes, that they practice social distancing to avoid any potential um, spread of the virus from individuals who may be asymptomatic. And so that's why really the recommendation continues to be for everybody to stay home, leave only if you have to leave for essentials like going to the grocery store or going to the pharmacy um, and when you are out in public for those essential errands to make sure that you maintain at least six feet of social distancing from others. Um, Governor, I actually have another data question. Um, other states have released broken down COVID-19 cases by race, uh, released nursing homes, um, and then kind of given the number of healthcare workers in those COVID cases that have been diagnosed. Um, does Iowa have plans to break down the data further to these points? Well, okay. I'll just relaying it. <laughs> no, um, at this point in time, we don't have plans to release, uh, to release case counts by race and ethnicity. Um, at the end of um, every outbreak, we do do an outbreak um, investigation report. And so um, once we get to that particular point in time, um, we might be ready to release some of that information. At this point in time, the way that the information is collected by the department, um, we don't have um, statistics that I think we would consider to be accurate and complete related to some of that race and ethnicity information. Uh, so that's not something that we plan to um, release at this particular point in time. And I'm sorry, but there was another part of your question. Yeah, about, about healthcare workers. Oh, healthcare been, workers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we do have some information about the um, number of our cases that are um, uh, healthcare workers. And right now that's at about 22%, 23, 22, 23% of all of our total cases are healthcare workers, which is why it is so important for people to stay at home because we 
need to make sure that that healthcare workforce um, is protected and stays well. You don't have statistics on race, or what are you like? What is the in the private labs and the state lab actually getting? Is it just what we're seeing, the ages and the counties of residents for data? Sorry, this is your day. No, it's okay. Um, there, are, there are a number of data variables that are collected, but it's not always complete information. And so what happens is we'll get a positive um, test result, and then we have our disease investigators that do the follow-up questions with patients um, and, and obtain charts and that sort of thing. So it kind of depends on the completeness of the information that we have, depends on the completeness of the information that comes to us. Um, so it takes us some time as we do those investigations to get complete information about each patient that has been identified as a positive case. So it, it's not like when we get the positive test result, all the other information flows with it. It takes time for our local disease investigators to follow up on those cases to, to really provide an accurate snapshot of that information. And so we continue to work on data collection processes, and um, we'll continue to do that um, over time. But the other thing that we're always sensitive about is releasing, is releasing any information that might make um, a, a potential case personally identifiable. And so patient confidentiality is one of our utmost concerns. And so when we're thinking about releasing data, that is always also in the back of our minds, um, making sure that we do that in a responsible way so that we're not identifying individuals. And that's one of the reasons, Caroline, that our numbers are delayed there last night because it gives our, our team time to do some of those fact-finding. Can you say how many long-term care facilities at this point are impacted and where those facilities are located at? Yeah, currently we have confirmed three long-term care facility outbreaks. Um, there's one in um, Lynn County, and that's Heritage Specialty Care. We have one in Washington County, and that's the McCready Home. And then we have one in Tama County, which is the premier states of Toledo. Obviously, the long-term care outbreaks are part of that metric system that you guys are using to determine, you know, shelter-in-place and other mitigation strategies in these regions. I'm wondering, again, if you can share anything more about where the science comes from behind that metric system. And I think the governor said yesterday that other states are looking to Iowa. Can you share a list of what states are asking for Iowa's well, system? Well, first, first of all, so last Friday, we spent the entire press conference highlighting the expertise and the team that put together the metrics. And so I would go back and ask people to take a look at that. We spent the whole press conference really identifying uh, the experts that we have, the epidemiologist team, the number of years that they've been working on uh, various outbreaks. And and we also said that we've got the metrics that we're looking at, but we're also looking at different assumptions. The epidemiologist team talks to epidemiologists in other states all across the country. They're working with the CDC. So, you know, there's a lot of conversations that are going on. We learn from other states and what they're doing. And information is constantly shared back and forth. I also um, do at least one or two calls a week with governors from across the country so that we can highlight what they're doing, what they're seeing, what are some of the outcomes, what's been successful, what hasn't, what are they mapping, what aren't they. So all of that is, you know, we take a look at all of that uh, when we're 
putting together what the recommendations are going forward. I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. But. Um, the only thing I also would add, see, and I brought a binder today, so I'm organized with my papers, and I'm not flipping them all around, but there's this nice document that the CDC put out, and it's been out for several weeks. We've been looking at it. We were looking at it before the governor made her recommendation related to school closures, and so I would encourage people to take a look at this particular document. A lot of the metrics that we're looking at um, in the community mitigation guidance document that you guys are um, referring to. A lot of the roots of that can be found here. And as the governor mentioned, um, there are also a number of other things that we look at in addition to what has been articulated in the document. But a lot of that is based on things that the CDC put out. Um, and, and the title of the document is Implementation of Mitigation Strategies for Communities with Local COVID-19 Transmission. We'll do one more question. Can you say if these regions scoring has increased in the past day, and in particular has the eastern region of the state moved up in any way closer to that number 10? Oh boy, that I don't have it. I think both, oh, oh she does, okay, I think they're a nine. Yeah, okay. So, no, excuse me. So region five as of today is a nine, region uh, six is an eight, region two is a seven, region one is an eight, Region four is a six, and region three is a six. And that aligns, of course, with the cases that we're seeing with the long-term care breakouts. And But again, the point I wanted to make and what I tried to make by showing you the metrics that we're looking at is to make sure that we're preserving the hospital capacity for COVID-19 patients. And as you can see, for instance, in Region 5 and Region 6, when we look at vents, um, we're just at 2% um, usage of available in Region 5, and we're at 15% usage of available in Region uh, 6, which is the Cedar Rapids in the Iowa City regions, which are the hot spots right now, and you know that would be comparable. Uh, we can look at the statistics for bed availability for ICU for vents, so that we can do exactly uh, what the general talked about. Take a look at it from a regional perspective. Understand where the equipment, the PPE, the bed availability, and the expertise is at, so that if we have to move or adjust, we have the capability to do that, and we have that data in um, all six regions. So we'll be highlighting the other two regions tomorrow and kind of try to give you on a daily basis the overall usage availability and what we're seeing as we move through uh, the, the COVID crisis. Beth, KCRG, go ahead. Thank you so much, Governor. I have a question about long-term care facility. Um, when it comes to management from the Iowa Department of Public Health, our guidance regarding influenza outbreak is an outbreak is defined as one lab confirmed influenza case and other respiratory illnesses on the same floor. But when it comes to an outbreak for COVID-19, which as we know is a much more serious disease, it requires three confirmed cases. And our neighbor to the North Minnesota defines an outbreak of COVID-19 at a long-term care facility as one case of a resident, a staff member, or a contract worker and I'm just wondering about that disparity and, and if Iowa were to adopt Minnesota's definition or even Iowa's own influenza definition, how many outbreaks would Iowa have among its 440 long-term care facilities? I think that was respiratory illness, not necessarily a breakout. But yeah, so, so I can answer that question, and the answer to that question is zero. Um, we have asked all long-term care facilities in the state to let us know if they have um, two or more residents or staff that are experiencing signs of respiratory illness. And so we've asked them to do that. We are paying close 
close attention to those respiratory illness um, reports. Um, but then in addition to that, as it related specifically to COVID-19, um, we don't have any facilities at this point in time as of this morning that have confirmed cases in residents other than the three long-term care facility outbreaks that I mentioned earlier. Thank you, Sarah. Mm -hmm. David Pitt, go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, so, Governor, I'm wondering if what happens when one of the regions hits a 10? Does that automatically trigger a shelter in place? And what will that mean specifically for that region beyond the closures you've already ordered? Yep. And one other question about the matrix that you're using. Um, if your actions are, in essence, the same thing as the shelter in place, why not just call it that? And why, um, why do we have this 12-point matrix if we're kind of already there? Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for the question. I appreciate that very much. And much like Iowa is not New York or California or New Jersey, we have different areas of the state that are experiencing different outbreaks. And so it would be irresponsible for me to just do a statewide when, according to Dr. Fauci, many of the mitigation efforts that I have put in place are actually aligned with the results that they're trying to get. And we're doing it on a community, county, region basis we have, the avail we have the ability to take a look at what we're seeing happening across the state. And by using these metrics, then, you know, we will be able to, if we hit a certain point where we think we have to take additional actions or additional steps, we can do that. But as this moves across the state, and hopefully we don't see that happen on the western side or the north central part of the state, but if it does and things start to stabilize, we start to see a decline, and we're actually experiencing the outcomes that we want, we might be able able to start to open up the eastern side of the state based on the data and the metrics that we're looking at at that time. So, um, you know, so I, we believe in what, you know, I believe in the data. I believe in the strategy. I think it's the right way to move forward. And, um, uh, we are working on what that looks like. Um, it, there are different variables that we can take for the next step. So be rest assured. It is, you know, if we feel that that needs to be done, and that's the recommendation from the experts, we will move forward. But again, remember, the metric is a piece of what we're looking at. There's other assumptions that are going into the recommendations that are being made um, from the epidemiologist team, the Iowa Department of Public Health, based on the CD CDC guidelines, which they based a lot of their metrics on. Again, I love, I think the more that we can do that, it's more consistent across not only the state of Iowa, but across the country. So we are working on what that looks like, and we will be ready to go if and when we need to do that. All right, there's Governor Kim Reynolds with her uh, Tuesday press briefing. We'll carry these uh, each and every day as they get underway at 11 and keep them for 25 minutes or so till the questions start to ra uh, wane down. Uh, let's do this. Trent KXNO and iHeart want to help you with your bills. Text the keyword CALM, C-A-L-M, CALM, to 200-200 right now. It's your chance to win $1,000. CALM to 200-200. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. Hi, Zuba Mahentes, Sports Center, ESPN joins us next as we take you until noon. Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO 106. Hey, right, welcome back, Miller. Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. Tomorrow, David Kaplan 
Uh, presented by Centurion Stone of Iowa. Cappy joins Trent and myself each and every Wednesday. He will be with us uh, tomorrow, amongst other things. Michelle from uh, Food Bank of Iowa is going to kick things off tomorrow morning, uh, early in the first hour of the program. Uh, let's get Zubin Mahente in here. Off we go to the Bristol area. Sports Center anchor Zubin Mahente, formerly of WOI, right here in Des Moines, joins us on 1460 KXNO and 106.3 FM. Hello, Zubin. What's going on, guys? How are you? Well, okay. Doing pretty well. You know, for a little while last night, got pretty excited with the uh, announcement. Jeff Passan. 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 Passan from ESPN does a terrific job. You guys made a great hire when you grabbed him. Uh, he's a terrific baseball writer. Um, he wrote a good piece. AP broke it, I believe, uh, last night. The fact that maybe, just maybe, Major League Baseball was going to start and there was going to be centered around the Phoenix area with Chase Field plus 10 spring training ballparks all located within 50 miles. Logistically, Zubin, very tough to pull off, but I'm encouraged that, you know, the sports, the leagues, are talking and putting stuff on a chalkboard at the very least. No doubt about it, because if you look at it, you've got your 10 stadiums, you've got Chase Field, which Scott Boris said could actually be used for triple headers, considering the weather in terms of heat or possible rain. So then you add 11 stadiums there, but you're playing three games at Chase Field. So now you're up to 13 games. They would probably also use Arizona State's baseball facility, from what we're being told. Okay. That would be 14. And then Grand Canyon University, which is a relatively new school, but has a lot of money. It's a for-profit university. They're the Antelopes. Uh, Dan Marley, the old yeah. Phoenix Sun star, yeah. actually used to be their head coach. He was fired or resigned, slash fired in the offseason. So that would give you another very good facility because that school has great facilities. So now you're talking... 15 facilities, because you're talking 10 plus 3 at Chase Field, two college facilities. You get 15, that's pretty much everybody playing every day, and that would be your 30 teams if it could work. A couple of other really interesting notes that you might find noteworthy from the Elias Sports Bureau and ESPN. We were looking at some stats yesterday. There is uh, the last Major League Baseball triple header, the last one, October 2nd, 1920. So it's been about 100 years Wild. since we've had a triple header, and there has never been a triple header involving more than two teams. Ideally, maybe a chase field, two teams play in one game, another two would play in another game. So you'd have a third or a fourth team, or maybe a fifth or a sixth team, depending on how it works out. So we've never had a triple header with more than two teams, although the circumstances might be different here. Haven't seen it in a century, and you could probably bump it up to 15 games a day to have everyone play almost every day, which is what essentially would happen during a 162, which we're not going to get. So they've added a couple ballparks, and we'll see what happens. Hopeful that something like this would work out. There are plenty of holes that you can shoot into it. Zubin, as you uh, make your way around the halls, a much quieter halls at ESPN as you're going into work than what you're normally used to, what's the general mood? I mean, I know here we're... We're still having fun. We're doing things. We're doing things differently, but we're still enjoying our time on the radio and talking to the members of the different shows here on KXNO. What's the mood like in, inside the campus there at ESPN? It's pretty quiet. I think people are making minimal movement. So, you know, I'll go in. I'll sit in our common area where we're really practicing some social distancing. Um, and then I'll go to the restroom. I'll go to the cafeteria. I'll do the show and leave. Um, there has really been no 
anything superfluous. I don't really go out of my way to do anything. There's really nobody to talk to or anything to do. What we are seeing, though, is we're having a lot of fun with different things. Like, so, for example, you know, as you guys know from a gambling perspective, iRacing is pretty much one of the more modern things you could gamble on. Guy that wins the race this weekend, William Byron, he actually raced 1,400 iRaces, and believe it or not, that got him a spot on the cup circuit. He's actually driving Jeff Gordon's car, and he basically got the gig because he was such a great iRacer, and now iRacing is all we have. He wins the race at Bristol on Sunday, the other Bristol, and we say, hey, you want to come on the show? Great. He comes on the show. We talk to him. You know, Arike Agumbawale, we showed her some of her great shots for Notre Dame the past couple of years to win the title. Hey, we're doing an encore presentation of the game. Come on in. What was it like when you were down 13 at the half? What was the game-winning shot like? And people are sending us videos from Belarusian soccer, Armenian baseball, table tennis. They're sending things from all over the place. And when people send things in, they're kind of curious on whether we'll use them on television. So we're sifting through as many things as we can. It's pretty serious. Um, but at the same token, we know if you're joining us at 11 o'clock Eastern time, you know, we want to make it worth your while. You know, Scott Van Pelt is talking to Rob Manfred. He's getting guests on. We're trying to figure out what's going on with UFC, which is one of the strangest stories really that's percolating is. right now. <laughs> yeah. So from our perspective, it's serious. But if people are sending things and they want to escape, we're trying to do it for them. And at the same token, if you're tuning in for an hour, even if there's no sports on, we have to make it palatable for viewers. So we're eliciting suggestions. We're seeing what people want. And we're trying to give them what they want. It's a lot harder. We're not on all the time now. We're basically on in the morning to do a little sports center, a little bit at night. We do NFL Live. We do an early evening show. We do PTI. These are more of our highly rated programs. We're not going across the board with things. We're stretching things out. Um, and that's about it. I guess we're kind of going from a day-to-day basis. And <laughs> as you might imagine, waiting for April 19th when we can start showing Mike. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We we all are, and uh, of course, the NFL draft two weeks from uh, Thursday night. You know, you mentioned the UFC and the story that's developing there. Dana White's trying to buy a private island or secure a, tri- a private island wow. so he can hold fights weekly, right? Zubin, isn't that what I read that he wants to you know hold a fight each and every week and do so on a private island? Yes, basically, what had happened was it was very interesting. Their last card was in Brasilia, Brazil, which they did with no fans. It felt like WrestleMania if you watched any of those clips. It was just a little awkward. Zubin, I watched the entire six hours of it. It started at two o'clock in the afternoon, I think, our time, and ended at eight Mm -hmm. o'clock. And you're right, there was nobody in the stands, but that was, I think, that Saturday was the last, was that the last sport, live sporting event maybe we had? It might have been. Yeah, they actually put some of it on Sunday night as well to try to space it out if you wanted to watch it in girls. They, they were billing it as too big for one night, but I'm guessing it might have had something to do with something else. Uh, but it was taped last week, and, you know, the spoilers came out and things leaked. But people were so curious, like yourself. But Dana was interesting. You know, after they had that card in Brazil, I want to say it was a few weeks ago, Dana, I interviewed Dana on SportsCenter the following week. And I said, all right, so what's going on right now? Because, you know, they were the last four standing. He's very close to President Trump. And he essentially said, other than a complete, total government shutdown, those are his words, we are not going to cease fighting. So I said, all right, what's the, what's the plan moving forward after the Brazil fight? And he said to me, next week, cards are canceled. They weren't huge. But this fight on April 18th is still on. It is absolutely on. The fight was between a guy named Khabib Namagamadov and Tony Ferguson. Khabib is Russian. He can't get out of Russia to travel, 
So they've replaced him on the fight with a guy named Dustin Gacy. So I bet Justin Gacy and Tony Ferguson is on April 18th. He's telling me this a few weeks ago. So I said, why is it so adamant for you to have this fight? You just canceled. You just told me you just canceled the three previous fights, but this fight has to go on. When the fight was initially with, between these two guys, it was the fourth time they had tried to do this fight with no success. So Dana was trying to put this together. They've been trying to get these two guys to go. It got scrapped again when Khabib couldn't get out of Russia. But he never gave me a straight answer. Why is this fight happening? He was looking to do fights at Indian reservations and all sorts of places where he could get any sort of clearance. But I said, why does this one have to go on? He said, it's adamant. I'm doing it. I'm not changing my mind. And Ariel Helwani, who is our MMA expert, I had talked to him on the radio last weekend, and I said, what is Dana's thing about this? Before we heard about the private island, he said, you got to look at it like this. People mistakenly think he's Adam Silver, Roger Goodell, Gary Bettman. He's not a commissioner. He's the president of the UFC. He financially has a right. stake in UFC, a company that was sold for $4 billion with a B. So he wants to keep going. He's aligned with the president. He's a huge moneymaker. People are talking about it. But ever since that last UFC card went down, he was 100% adamant that nothing, almost nothing, could stop this fight from happening. And as you mentioned, with the private island that they're trying to secure at some point, that's pretty much total desperation time. But he told me when we talked previously, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make this card work. And apparently he is scraping the bottom of the barrel to make it work. Did he sell it? Did, did he, um, who, who did he buy it from? For, was it the Fertitta family? And I think he owns the Rockets, maybe the Houston Rockets. I think they have a bunch of casinos in Vegas, maybe the station properties. Do you know, Zubin? Yeah, you guys... You- yeah, he's a fascinating guy. For people that know a little bit about true crime and Ken, you're of age, I'm of age. This guy grew up in South Boston. He had connections to, like, Whitey Bulger. There's, like, <laughs> Whitey Bulger stories with Dana White. Whitey Bulger, one of the biggest mob bosses out there, is in the FBI's head most one of us for a long time. He was captured several years ago. But he comes from a way different background than some of these other guys do. And some of his street smarts have definitely helped. He did connect with the Fertitas. And it was a organization that was bought on the cheap. William Morris Endeavor, which is a huge management agency, talent agency in Hollywood, has gotten involved as well. So, yeah, it's essentially him and Tillman Fertitta, who fronts a ton of money in Hollywood. He does own the Rockets. Uh, he also has the Fertitta Center, where the University of Houston plays their college basketball games, is named after him as well. So, yeah, it was Fertitta and his uh, casino connections, along with Dana, who had come out to Vegas. They now have a UFC performance training center, very similar to what you saw with the wrestling on Saturday. That's in Orlando. Their version is in Vegas. Um, and so, yeah, he came together with the Fertitas and WME, which is a huge, powerful Hollywood agency, also involved with the UFC. Zubin Mahete joining us from ESPN Sports Center. Zubin, the NFL draft now 16 days away. Saw a article about John Harbaugh, very concerned that as they go virtual with playbooks and the like, that People are going to be hacking into it. The NFL draft, though, that certainly could be there, too, with all these war rooms happening and somebody with some IT uh, information that can get out there and figure out a way to hack in and see what they're all talking about here. How secure is the NFL and and each team? Do you think it'll be enough? Or are we going to have maybe another layer of stories that's going to come out the way that Team X hacked in and understood who they were going to take. Don't, and don't let me up. guess. T-Mex is the Patriots? Well, yeah, that'd probably be a good place to start. <laughs> Zubin? 
that's a low hanging fruit. Yeah, really? like that one. It wasn't even eye level, but uh, <laughs> I would I would tell you two things. I think one, it's a serious concern. It seems silly to say this in the times in which we're living, but Harbaugh is just trying to stick to business. And if you've seen some of the really nasty stories out there about what this is now being called, I'm sure you guys have heard about this, the Zoom box, right? People are moving into mm-hmm. other people's Zoom video conferences. Uh, people have had their you know online college theses wrecked by people coming in. There's been some racist language used at some prospects that were doing interviews on Zoom, and people have hacked in and done some horrible things there. Zoom and it hit the sports world with the New York Rangers. The the uh, one of their you know the recent signings was an African American. Did you see that Zubin? Yeah, and that's indeed what I'm referencing. Yeah. That essentially, I think there were 40 instances throughout this particular conference call with this particular guy in the Rangers where there were 40 instances of some racial epithets being thrown at him while he was on one of yeah. these video conference calls. And if that is going to be as easy to get into uh, as that kid had to deal with, or like I said, people that are going to do things to finish off college and they're doing things online and people are hacking into them, if those can be penetrated that easily... I certainly think Harbaugh has a serious concern there. Um, so I think it is legitimate because we've seen it outside of the football world. So many businesses, people that are working, are using Zoom or any video referencing and conferencing message. And if they can be hacked into, I think Harbaugh probably feels like, you know, why are we any safer than they are? So it is a real legitimate concern. I mean, you've seen the Saints. Uh, the Saints are going to be holding their draft set up at something called the Dixie Eatery and Brewery. It's mm-hmm. like a restaurant owned by the team's owner, mm-hmm. Gail Benson. Andy Reid is thinking about just, you know, getting a bunch of hotel rooms to maybe isolate. Everybody's sort of on their own. It definitely doesn't seem like you're going to be able to hold them in the team facilities because every state has kind of a different order with regard to stay at home or sheltering or what you can do. So it's sort of an every team for itself sort of endeavor with Goodell saying, look, if we don't all have the uniform rules, we can't all be at the facility. Either we're all there or none of us are there. It's a totally binary thing. And with every state, Iowa is different than here in Connecticut, or we can't really have that. So I think that's a legitimate concern from Harbaugh. And I think eventually you're probably going to see, uh, you know, got Roger Goodell doing something from his house in Bronxville, New York, which is right outside of New York City. And then some sort of communication either between the NFL Network Studios or here at ESPN, there's been a lot of things floated about perhaps using the NFL Network or ESPN yep. and our resources in our studios and combined with what Goodell perhaps got at his house in Bronxville uh, to make it work. Yeah, Zubin, I, re- I read a piece, and um, maybe you can add some uh, some clarity to it, that the NFL Network and ESPN are going to combine their resources and make it one broadcast, essentially, that will air on both platforms. Have you heard anything about that? Is that was that accurate? Yeah, I'd heard that. I was working with Steve Levy over the weekend, and he had actually mentioned that to me. It's almost sort of like if you're watching the World Cup, you have, like, the world feed, right? Everybody in the country can take this picture and that picture. Okay. And you can put your appropriate graphics on and have your people talk. But the visual you're going to see essentially would be the same. Now, I will mention that the NFL Network, if and when the season does resume with the Rams and the Chargers, NFL Media Group, NFL Network, is actually moving into a complex that's going to be built adjacent to this stadium and, you know, bars and restaurants. And NFL Media Group is going to be moving there. So I don't know what the logistics are of what their facility is like in Culver City now, knowing that eventually they were going to make this huge move over to the Rams Chargers Stadium, having no idea the pandemic was going to happen. You know, as for ESPN, we had two gigantic digital centers 
Um, off the top of my head, I know we have at least seven gigantic studios and then some smaller ones. I would imagine if we were to use things for the NFL draft, we would go with the biggest things that we have. We have one studio that's 24-7, 365. Every studio is kind of named after a letter of the alphabet. Our Studio Z uh, is 100% NFL, 24-7, 365. So, you know, that could be the solution. It's large, it's cavernous. They have Sunday NFL Countdown, NFL Live. It's built for the NFL, the graphics, the teams, the imagery. Everything's already built for the NFL. And I have no idea if that would be used or they, you know, combine studios. Everything's kind of rolled out. You can kind of make a lot of things look a lot bigger uh, than they are. But I did hear that from Steve, what you sort of said, that essentially it's going to be sort of a, a central command in terms of having video. And then each network would be able to accentuate however they can, although I would imagine in this particular case it's going to be a lot less souped up than it used to be. Masters in November, Zubin, what does that do to ESPN's programming in normal times? With it in November, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I actually think the bigger story here is with, you know, with CBS, right? I mean, they could impact their college football Saturday, and it could impact their NFL Sunday, because on a Masters Sunday, on a Sunday, I think it goes from, 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. Now, obviously, these are geared to your contract and things can be adjusted in terms of moments like this. But, you know, that would preclude, you know, the NFL from not even airing on CBS on a Sunday. If they want to go Masters final round, you're not going to be able to cut out at 2 p.m. in the third quarter of the first game. You may not have the doubleheader that day. I know it's scheduled for that block of time, the 12th to the 15th. But Fred Ridley did kind of say, who's the chairman of Augusta National, did sort of say that right now it's a little more malleable. They could go 9 to 15 if they wanted to. That would be quote-unquote Masters Week because the Augusta Women's Amateur is canceled, the drive, putt, uh, the drive, putt, and chip is canceled. So it's possible that they could use the early portion of that. Instead of going 12 to 15, they could use the early portion of that with the 9, get it over mm-hmm. perhaps before Saturday or Sunday, and that would relieve CBS of a lot of strain uh, for college football and the NFL and for our purposes, you know, we're probably involved, you know, the first two rounds on any weekday. Essentially, that's still produced by CBS, aired on ESPN. Right. Uh, so I think it would probably be an easier fix for us. I don't want to speak out of turn. I'm just thinking as somebody that's watched this tournament for years, it would probably be more burdensome for CBS, considering what their commitments are on Saturday and Sunday. And if it's possible to maybe move up the tournament and have it end during a weekday. Could it end on a Thursday or a Friday to get the television commitments in. I think they may be willing to do that um, because obviously, you know, it's one of those situations where the NFL is up and going. I just don't think anything can move the NFL off of its television schedule. So maybe there's some room at the beginning of that 9 to 15 window. That makes a ton of sense, Zubin. It really does because don't forget, we'll be in fallback by then. The clocks will have pushed back and that's 7 o'clock in April uh, where there's still daylight. Won't be the case in November. Zubin, as always, very informative. Thank you for what you do for us and we will uh, talk to you in a week's time and who knows, maybe we'll have some clarity as far as some dates. Probably not, but uh, we'll be closer to the draft if nothing else. Thank you, Zubin. You got it. Stay safe, guys. Yeah, you do the same, my friend. Zubamante from ESPN, ESPN Sports Center. He joins Trent and I on a weekly basis. So, uh, finishing up our day, Restaurant Radio here. We're already filling in the slots for next yes, week. Yes, we are. For, wanted, ne- for this Thursday. Yes. Uh, wanted to mention Broheim's. One thing that Justin uh, didn't point out when he was on with us, but we talked about gift cards for mm-hmm. a lot of these businesses and helping some cash flow to keep them afloat. $100 gift card right now. If you buy a $100 gift card at Broheim's, two hours free simulator 
when they're back up and running. Oh, very nice. Yes. Two hours you can get just about 18 in, depending on how many people are in your group. Have Boy, you ever fun. done that? A simula- yeah. Have you? Yeah. What course yeah, did you Holland. play? We played St. Andrews. It did not go well. Of course you did. I was in pop bunkers. No, but you know what? What a great choice. <laughs> yes. It's a disaster. I, it? I mean, I'm not a good golfer Did you get in, in a pot bunker? Oh, yes. Oh, I'd love to try. I would love to try, and not a simulator, yeah. but a real the real one. Oh, Yeah. Nearly impossible. It has to be, yes. right? Yes. I wish I was a better golfer, but it's fun. No, it truly is. Well, yeah, Broheims was part of it today. Where's our list from today? Let's go back over this one more time. So today we had Sarpinos, uh, Jethro's, and all of their locations. Annie from Andy from Sinorama, who's helping out a lot of grocery stores with their uh, markings, etc., uh, as they direct traffic through the aisle sports page in Ankeny, Indianola, and Winterset. Uh, Pinoak Winery, we learned about them. Corner Cafe, 100th Street Corner Cafe, Haiku, uh, Broheim's Golf, Exile, Brewery. We had the wrong number for them, but they're already scheduled for Thursday. Dark Side of the Spoon giving away 5,000 chicken wings to health professionals and first responders tomorrow. Nice for How them. awesome. Awesome, absolutely. Murph and Andy at 2, Fanatics 4, Morning Rush tomorrow at 6. Miller and Condon, thanks for being here. Talk to you tomorrow.